Well, this morning we're taking a break from the gospel according to Matthew uh, for a number of reasons. One is so that on Easter morning we can get to Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and following. I think it's verse 41. Uh, verse 44, where Jesus reminds us that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. I wanted to save that for Easter because I think Easter especially is a good reminder of that truth when we learn of the resurrection of Christ uh, and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so with that truth in mind, we're, we're putting Matthew on hold and we're going to address the idea of, of God's sovereignty in the midst of sickness. God's sovereignty in the midst of sickness. There's been, a, there's been a lot written and spoken by Christians in the last few weeks about how we are to understand and respond to this virus. Some of it's good stuff, and some of it's really helpful. Some of it's really biblical. Some of the things that we've been hearing from Christians is actually not helpful, though. And it's unbiblical, and it's misguided. But, but regardless... All of it has helped us to see that we as Christians do have answers. At least we know we should have answers because we have the Word of God. And so we're going to look to God's Word this morning and see exactly what God has told us about sickness and death and His control over those things. But before we open God's Word, I want to pray as we begin our time together. Father in heaven, we pray that as we look to your Word that we would, we would look with anticipation, that we would look knowing that we can trust you, that we would be seeking you as our Father who has all of the, all the answers for us. Everything we need, we know that you have given to us. Everything that we know we can understand in this life, we know we have been given in your word. So give us listening ears to your word, Lord. Give us humility as we open your word this morning. Give us understanding. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about sickness and death. So much to say, in fact, that I've limited this morning's passage selection to just a few passages, and we'll get to those in just a moment. But in those few texts, here's what we're going to see. There's two big truths that we're going to see from God's word. One is that sickness and death are a part of the human condition because of our sin. The second thing that we're going to see is that God sovereignly uses sickness and death for his glory. So sickness and death are here because of our sin, but God uses sickness and death for his glory. So we'll start on the cheery side this morning with the subject of death itself. No good theology of sickness can ignore death. Sickness leads to death. Not every sickness, but eventually there will be a sickness with your number on it. 
Death is imminent for all of us. It's close by. Always close by. It was near to you from the day that you were conceived. And death will be near to you until its shadow crosses over you. When Roman generals, in the time when Rome had an empire, when the, when the, when the generals would win a, a major battle for the empire, there would be these huge parades in Rome. This is where military parades come from. And the conquering general would, would be in a chariot pulled by four horses, and behind him, in the chariot with him, would be a, someone from the tribe or the, or the nation that he had just conquered. It'd be a slave. And, and that, that person's only job was to whisper in the general's ear, Memento Mori. Memento Mori. What that means is, remember, you are mortal. Why was that necessary? It's so, that, it's so the general wouldn't begin to think of himself as a god. He was being praised by the entire country as he was paraded through the streets of Rome. He was dressed like Jupiter, the god of war. And the tradition was there to keep him from letting that glory go to his head. Remember, you are mortal. And just like those generals, we also need that reminder, don't we? Memento mori. We often live pretending that it's not true. We, we live pretending that we're not going to die. Teenagers and 20-somethings are notorious for this. That's why they make the best soldiers. But all of us are guilty of defying death, at least to some degree. The old Roman philosopher Cicero said that no men, no man rather, is so old as to think that he cannot live another year. No man is so old as to think that he cannot live another year. Some of us are better at pretending that than others. But all of us have been brought down a few notches these last couple months. We've all had to stare death in the face as we stared this disease that's ravaging the nations in the face. And that face-off has caused us to see that whatever sense of security we attributed to our work or our finances or our economy or our nation, it's all been undermined. We've seen pretty clear that none of those things can stave off death forever. We've seen in the last several weeks that this disease is totally indiscriminate. Coronavirus infects the poor factory worker in China just as quickly as it infects the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. It goes after famous people and athletes the same way it goes after homeless people and people that no one has ever heard of. It attacks Jews and Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists all the same. None of us is immune. Rich, poor, middle class, young, old, black, brown, yellow, tan, white, 
We're all equally descendants of Adam. And so we're all affected by this virus in some way. So we're going to open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, and I'll give you a moment to turn to Luke. And what we're going to see in Luke 13 is that Jesus is teaching that truth about death, that none of us, none of us escapes death. The news story that we're going to be seeing referenced in this passage in Luke chapter 13 is that some Galilean Jews had gone into Jerusalem. So they've come down from Galilee. They've gone to Jerusalem and they've gone to the temple to worship. They're going to make sacrifices. And while they were there making their sacrifices, they were killed by Roman soldiers who were taking orders from the governor, Pilate. And their bodies were then left bloodied on the altar with their sacrifices that they had brought. This is one of those really rare stories that we see in the Gospels because it's one of the few stories that that reveals just how bad living under Roman rule in Israel really was. In fact, aside from the Passion Week narrative, This is the only time we hear from Pilate, the governor, at all throughout the Gospels. The view into Christian or into Jewish life in Israel here also explains why many who were waiting for the Messiah were disappointed that he wasn't there to throw off Roman rule. In fact, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Life in Israel would not get better, but it would get progressively worse all the way up to 70 AD when the temple would be destroyed. Jewish life, and we need, to, we need to understand this clearly, Jewish life did not improve when Jesus showed up. That's why many Jews didn't believe he was really the Messiah. And on a side note, this tyrannical type of government, what we're seeing here, with Pilate attacking these Galileans, this is the tyrannical type of government that Paul and Peter were living under when they said that we should submit to those in governing authority. Soldiers entering into places of worship and using violence to strike fear into the Jews, to remind them of Rome's power. That's happening when Paul and Peter tell us to be subject to the authorities over us. Paul tells us in Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by the Lord. Governors like Pilate, the governor who killed the Galileans. We're to be subject to them. So so with that in mind, as as we're kind of closing this parentheses, we can all admit, no matter where we are in America, we can all admit that we're nowhere near the point where we as Christians should consider acts of civil disobedience in response to this crisis. Nowhere near it. When, When they begin to tell you to stop proclaiming the gospel, 
when they try to tell you to change your gospel, then, Christian, risk jail time. But right now, we as Christians are being asked to do exactly what everyone else in the entire country is being asked to do, to limit this disease's spread. Stay at home. We're not being persecuted. It's inconvenient. But, but Christians are not being singled out and discriminated against. Not yet. So with that aside, let's look now to Luke 13. And I'm going to read Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So people are coming up to Jesus, they're approaching Jesus, and they're telling him about these Galileans that we talked about a moment ago, these Galileans who were killed by Pilate. And they're telling him the news as sort of a question, aren't they? As in, what are you going to do about this, Jesus? What do you have to say about these people who were killed, your countrymen who were killed? Now, in our day and age, here's what we might expect Jesus to say. This is sort of the popular American evangelical response. We, we might say something like, well, well that happened because Pilate was an evil man, and there are evil people in the world. And if you have kids, like mine, they will not be satisfied with that trite of an answer, and they'll ask the follow-up question, okay, but why are there evil people in the world? And some of us might say, well, because God wants us to have free will. And since God wants us to have free will, bad things are going to happen, and there's just not that much that we can do about it. But that is not at all how Jesus responds to this question, is it? It's nowhere near how Jesus responds to this question. And he doesn't respond that way because that idea, that way of thinking is not a part of the first century Jewish worldview or any Jewish worldview leading up to that time. That's just not how they thought. They didn't presume with arrogance that their understanding was somehow greater than God's. And they didn't feel the need to defend God's goodness by shifting the blame off of him. In fact, they would have understood that God was in control, even though it was Pilate who ultimately pulled the trigger. And they understood that because they knew their Old Testament. In, in, in Israel's grand story, as we read Genesis to Malachi, from Exodus to exile, 
we see that sin often led directly to judgment for the sinner. God used foreign nations and plagues and diseases to punish his own people for their sin. If you're reading through the Bible, you're probably now through Israel's wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And over and over and over again, you've seen that Israel's sins are judged. And they're judged by, by all sorts of means that God uses. In a few weeks, Pastor Saunders is going to walk us through a study of Habakkuk. And, and we'll see there that God uses the Chaldeans as his rod to punish Israel. And we, we, we'll ask that question, did, did the Chaldeans freely choose to inflict suffering on Israel? And the answer is clearly yes. And they will be held accountable by God for their actions. But it's also true that God used them. He caused them to punish Israel. And those two truths are compatible in Scripture. So compatible, in fact, that they aren't questioned in Scripture. And so that's the worldview that Jesus is addressing here. Jesus can see into the hearts of the people inquiring about these deaths, and he knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're thinking that, that maybe those Galileans who were killed were killed because they deserved death more than everyone else. Maybe these particular Galileans had committed some egregious sin. And so God was using Pilate to kill them the same way that he used the Chaldeans to punish Israel previous to that. And we know that Jesus is, is responding to this way of thinking because he says so. Look at verse 2 with me. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then look at the text. He answers that question, doesn't he? Verse 3. No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. See what he's saying? Those people who were killed did not deserve it any more or any less than anyone else. In fact, Jesus is saying to everyone who's asking that question, it could just as well have been you. Look again at verse three. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is teaching here that death is universal. All humans will die because all of humanity is born into sin. We see that in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Jesus is teaching the same thing. Unless you repent, and, and sin there is, is understood, unless you repent of sin, you will likewise perish. And, and you need to know this as well. When Jesus says perish there in verse 3, that's not just another word for die. The, the English translations soften this a bit, but Jesus is actually using a word that implies a very destructive death. 
It's a word that's usually translated as destroy, as in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy. Same word as in Luke 13, 3. Apollosai, destroy. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, so we could just as well in Luke 13 say, unless you repent of sin, you will likewise suffer destruction. Jesus is teaching that those who die, having never repented of their sin and turned to him, will be destroyed. They die the death of destruction. He's also teaching that death is indiscriminate. It is universal. The wages of sin is death, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, whether you're from Galilee or Jerusalem, Wuhan or New York City. And to prove just how indiscriminate death really is, Jesus then turns their attention away from the East County Podunk Galileans who died to some of the city dwellers in Jerusalem, the people who lived near the temple. They died too. Look at verse 4. Luke 13, verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And then verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Doesn't matter where you're from. Whether out in the county or near the temple, the wages of sin is death. And death comes in many forms. In each of these circumstances, the outcome is the same, isn't it? Those murdered by Pilate and those killed by the tower, they all died. If both of those incidents that Jesus had told us about were were in the Jerusalem Tribune that week, the first would say, murder of worshipers at the hands of tyrannical governor. And the second headline would say, tragic accident near Siloam, 18 dead. same outcome. The, the, the efficient, or what we call the, the proximate cause, was very different in both of these cases. In the first, people are brutally killed by a violent man. In the second, the tower just met its stress threshold and fell over. We'd say that, that gravity and structural failure were the proximate cause. And Jesus is saying here, while these appear on the surface to be totally different cases, the causes appear to be different, the victims are different, the ultimate cause is the same, the wrath of God in response to sin. So the lesson in both cases is that unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. And this tells us two things. The the first is obvious. Our death comes as a result result of our sin nature. It's very clear in the text. But the second is less clear, and I want us to see this. God is sovereign even over death. He is the sender 
of death. Jesus is telling us here that God righteously appointed for those people to die when they did. Their days were numbered. Dustin read for us earlier Psalm 139. And what did we see? Our days are numbered. Read Psalm 190 or Psalm 90. And what do we see? Our days are numbered. In fact, Psalm 90, verse 12, the, the psalmist Moses says to the Lord, he prays to the Lord, teach us to number our days. It's a virtue to know that our days are numbered. And what's interesting is that we all fundamentally understand this. Even non-Christians understand this concept. One of the strangest calls that I ever responded to when I was a police officer was similar to to the Tower of Siloam incident. It was uh, early evening, sometime in in the winter, so it had gotten dark early up in Washington State. A man was riding home from work on his motorcycle. He's obeying the speed limit. He's wearing all the right safety gear. He's minding his own business. And at the moment that he drove through the 13800 block of the Carnation Duval Road, a giant Douglas fir tree breathed its last and fell over. The five-foot diameter trunk hit him in the head and crushed him, and he was instantly killed. And the thing about that call that was unusual is that if he had been going just a little bit faster that evening, he would have never even known that a tree fell. He would have made it home safely to eat dinner with his wife and his kids. If he had been going just a little bit slower, he would have seen the falling tree and had time to stop. But that man was at the exact spot at the precise moment when that tree fell. I remember going back to the precinct that night and writing reports and sitting next to another deputy, a man who wasn't a Christian. And we were kind of processing that incident. And you know what he said? He said, it was his time. It was his time. It's not a foreign concept to us, is it? We all innately understand that there are some things that are totally, totally outside of of our control, but are not at all accidental. They're not coincidental. Someone is in charge, and it's not us. And we as Christians know that the someone in charge is the sovereign ruler over all creation, the holy and righteous one. The one whose wrath towards sin is unending, but whose patience and mercy and love are equally everlasting. He is the one deserving of all glory and praise and honor. And that truth leads us to the second truth that I told you we see that in our scripture this morning. And here it is. God's glory is made known through sickness and death. We see this in two stories in John's gospel. So turn with me to John chapter 9 for the first of these stories. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
John chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 1. We'll go to verse 7. John 9, 1 through 7. Are you there? Good. All right, John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Interesting, this happens near the pool of Siloam, while our last story happened near the Tower of Siloam, both in Jerusalem. But right off the bat here in our, in our text, we see that the disciples have a very similar concern that the people had in Luke 13. Did you notice it? Look, look at verse 2. In regards to the man who was born blind, they ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents? So, so in the same way that God brought death in response to sin, we know in Scripture that he often brought sickness. Think of Miriam. Think of Miriam in Numbers, who was, who was bitter and jealous of Moses, and so she was stricken with leprosy. Think of how even in the New Testament, in Acts, Paul blinds a man for opposing the gospel. See, the disciples here, they know their Bible, so their, their question is not totally off base. Oftentimes, sickness does come as judgment for sin. But Jesus is going to teach us here that not all sickness comes as a result of judgment. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, It was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but, but look closely, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is saying that this man is not being disciplined. He's not being punished. He was born blind so that in God's providence, that means according to God's plan, he was blind so that when he grew up, he would be sitting there on the roadside on the very day that the Messiah would be passing by and he would be healed that day. And if we think, if we think about that kind of casually, we think, oh, good, right? Good, good, good. God's, God's not always punishing people. Sometimes he's doing miracles. And that's kind of a convenient way to respond to this. But honestly, it's kind of shallow. I, I want you to think about this. Let's go a little bit deeper. Just set ourselves there in that blind man's family. That blind man is a man. Let, let's suppose for the sake of argument that he's 30 years old. Maybe he's older, maybe he's a little younger, but let's just suppose he's 30. That means he's old enough for everyone to be familiar with him. Old enough for everyone to know that he was born blind. People knew his story. And they knew his story because they, they'd seen him so often sitting there on the roadside begging. That means 
For some 30-odd years, this man has suffered. When his parents brought him into the world, their lives suddenly became more difficult. His mother couldn't take him with her to the market. She had to find help to watch him. He couldn't help in the fields at harvest time. He couldn't help at planting time, but he still had to be fed. He couldn't help his father at whatever trade his father had. In fact, the extra work required to raise him was probably very costly for his family, likely more than his family could handle. And there's no social security. There's no safety net. So imagine the stress on his parents' marriage. Imagine the fights. Imagine the tears of the mother knowing that her son would not be able to support her in her old age. Think of the shame of the father. In a culture where people always assumed that sickness was a curse, where they always assumed that it was some sort of judgment on sin, think of the way that people looked at the father and the shame that he felt wherever he went. How many times do you think he had to explain to people that he had not committed some egregious sin? Think of the sadness that he must have felt in no longer being able to provide for his own child. And so in the end, having to turn him out on the streets to beg. Have you thought about it? Now, don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry to brush past this blind man's humanity, his hurt, and in his shame, sitting there begging on the roadside for years. Just let it sink in for a moment. This man was born blind, and he and his family suffered for a very long time. Why? Why does Jesus tell us this man suffered for such a long time? Look at verse 3. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. That man was born blind so that the Christ would be revealed through him. John tells us that Jesus healed many blind people. But John only tells us specifically about this healing. And he makes it very clear that the reason this man suffered was so that Christ would be glorified in healing him. Not all sickness is judgment. There are times when God uses sickness to make his glory known through his mercy and grace. Think of the many, many decades that Sarah suffered through barrenness. God made Sarah barren so that he could bless her with a child in her old age. And it was through that child, Isaac, that the promise to Abraham would be made known. Sarah didn't have to be barren, but God made her barren so that his glory could be made known to the nations. 
Think of how God makes his glory known through Naaman's leprosy in 2 Kings. In that story, you get both God's glory in sickness and God's judgment on sickness. God makes his glory known through sickness and death. Turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to see something very similar. In John 11, we see God using sickness and death again to make his glory known. And we won't read the whole passage this morning, but, but I, want you to, I want to pull a couple of the excerpts out here for us to see so we can see the point. John 11, verses 1 through 7. Are you there? Just a couple pages past where we were in John 9. So John chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, and I'll read this one for us as well. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. You catch the theme here? It's very similar to what we saw in chapter 9, isn't it? Only this time, it's not an unnamed blind man on the side of the street. It's Jesus' closest friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, three people that he loves. Lazarus is very, very sick, and his sisters believe he's going to die. And so what do they do? They send for Jesus, the miracle worker, because they know that he can heal Lazarus. And what does Jesus say? Look at verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for what? Look look again closely at the text. Verse 4. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus tells us ahead of time, his glory is going to be made known through this sickness. And the way John writes it, we'd expect it to be similar to chapter 9. Jesus is going to hurry back to Bethany, and he's going to heal Lazarus, and his glory will be made known. But look at verse 6. That's not what happens. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Did you notice that? Jesus intentionally waited two extra days where he was. Intentionally. Why? Jesus wanted to make good and sure that Lazarus would die from his illness. And that's exactly what happens. Lazarus suffers All the way to the end, he dies, leaving his sisters grieving and angry with Jesus. Martha and Mary know how long it would have normally taken Jesus to get to them from where he was. They're counting the days. 
And when he didn't arrive on the day they expected, they began to get upset. So upset that when he finally arrives, word gets to them that he's coming to town and Martha races down the street to meet him. And look what she says to him in verses 20 and 21. This is the first thing she says when she sees Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew that he could have stopped Lazarus' death. And she knew that Jesus chose not to. Unless we begin to think that it's just Martha who's upset with Jesus. Skip down to verse 32. Jesus and Martha walk back to the house. And look at the first thing that Mary says when Jesus walks in the door. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same exact phrasing. There's no mystery here. Martha and Mary know that Jesus waited on purpose. They, they know that Jesus let Lazarus die on purpose. It was his good and perfect will to do so. But what, what right does Jesus have to do this? To let a man die of disease when he could have healed him. What could possibly have been more important than healing Lazarus and helping Martha and Mary, people that he loved in their time of need. What right does Jesus have? What could possibly be more important? Skip down to verse 40. So we've gone from the street where Martha meets Jesus and they have a conversation they go into the house. Martha and Mary and Jesus are all there together. And the Jesus wants to go see Lazarus, so they go to the graveside. So when we get to verse 40, we're at the graveside. And John tells us that it is a cave with a stone rolled in front, which is a common burial practice. And Jesus tells Martha and Mary and the people that are there with him, to roll away the stone. And, and Martha and Mary, who are still upset with Jesus for letting this happen to begin with, they fuss about how bad it's going to stink. And look how Jesus responds in verse 40. He says to Martha and Mary, Did I not tell you that if you believed, by that he means if you believed in me, if you believed that I'm the Son of God, if you believed that I'm the Messiah, if you believed that I'm the resurrection and the life, if you believed, you would see what? Look at verse 40. You would see the glory of God. If you believed, you would see the glory of God. And they take away the stone and Jesus calls Lazarus out from the dead. And Lazarus hears the effective call of his Savior and he's raised from the dead. And God is glorified in Christ through the resurrection of Lazarus. The pain and the suffering and the sickness of Lazarus and the grief of his sisters was intentional. All along, it was meant by God to bring glory to Christ. 
That's how John frames the story for us from the beginning of chapter 11 to the end. It was meant for the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is of greater weight. It is of greater significance than what Mary and Martha were feeling. As great as their loss was, as great as their suffering was, the glory of Christ was greater. Do you see that in the Lazarus story? Do you see that today as we face the coronavirus as a church? It may not be that Christ is going to raise from the dead the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who will die from this disease, at least not before his return. And while he probably won't raise them from the dead, he probably won't miraculously heal them either. While that's true, the glory of Christ should be of greater concern to us as Christians than any loss we may suffer as a result of this illness or anything that comes surrounding this illness. Whether our loss is our own health or our own life or the life of a loved one or our children, whether it's economic, whatever it is, the glory of Christ is of greater concern. And we have more surety of that than even Mary and Martha did. Because we're on this side of Calvary. Christ's glory has been made known to us in a way that is far greater than Mary and Martha saw in their day. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took on himself the wrath that God righteously has towards our sin. And when he rose from the grave, he took away the power that death has over us. So when we repent of our sin and turn to Christ in faith, we no longer have to fear the destruction of death. Christ has conquered death. And one day when he returns, Christ will finally destroy death and sin will be no more. But while we wait, that day's not here yet. So while we wait, we can live this way. We as Christians can live as a people who do not fear death. We are a people who are met only by death's shadow and not its force. One pastor tells the story of, of when his wife had died, leaving behind he and his children. And as he and his kids were driving to the church for his wife's funeral, there's a semi-trek in front of them on the highway, driving slowly, slowly enough so that when the kids looked off to the side, they could see the giant shadow of the truck on the field beside them in the road. It was late in the afternoon, and so the shadow was larger than it normally would have been. 
And the pastor, the father of the kids, pointed to the shadow in the field. And he asked the the teary-eyed kids this question. He said, if you had to be run over, would you rather be run over by the truck or its shadow? And the kids sat there for a moment in the car, kind of confused by this strange would-you-rather game. And, and, and the youngest of the kids finally broke the silence and said, the shadow. And the pastor said, but why? And the child said, shadows don't hurt. And the father said, that's right. So remember this, Jesus let the truck of death strike him so that it could never destroy us. Your mom is with Jesus now because only the shadow of death has passed over her. Friends, we have so much more hope than Mary and Martha had even on the day that their brother Lazarus was raised from the dead. Lazarus eventually would die again. He would be laid to rest again. But Christ, our salvation, has been raised permanently. And because of his resurrection, we have so much more knowledge of the hope of the gospel that letting the glory of Christ be lived out in us is not just our duty. It's our greatest joy. It's our greatest joy. Next week, when we look at the parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great value, in both cases, the person who finds that treasure gives up everything they have, everything they have to purchase it. And that means that a life lived for the glory of Christ is worth giving everything up for. Everything, our health, our homes, our jobs, our families, everything. We of all people, because we have Christ, have reason to hope even as the world is melting. Do you believe that? Because it's true. There's one last scripture that I want to share with you. One last scripture that teaches us that Christ's glory is made known in sickness. Now I want to close with this because it's the only text that I have for you today. There's more, but there's, it's the only one I have for you today that happens after Christ's resurrection. So this is the age that we live in. After Christ's resurrection, when we know the hope of the gospel. In Galatians 4, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4, Paul reminds the church of the circumstances that brought him to them in Galatia. Look with me at Galatians 4, beginning in verse 12. Galatians 4, 12. Paul says to the church, he says, Brothers, I entreat you, because as I am, for I also, I'm sorry, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. 
You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Look again at verse 13, Galatians 4, 13. Did you see what he said there? It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you. Paul's telling the Galatians that the only reason he ever stopped in their town instead of passing right on through was because he was sick. And it was that illness that was ordained by God and given to Paul that brought the gospel to a people who desperately needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul had a hope, even in his weakness, even when his illness made him a burden to others. He had a hope that suffering and humiliation could not keep him from making much of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul saw his sickness not as a cause to despair, to feel sorry for himself, but as an opportunity to make Christ known. Friends, as we face this virus that will likely continue to get worse, and it will likely infect some of us in the church, We know this much. Sickness and death are here because of our sin. We also know this. Sickness and death are within the sovereign decree of God. But we also know this. Because of the work of Christ, sickness and death are temporary for the believer And they are nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ. And so we face this season, not with fear, but with hope. We can face this with hope. We can endure this with joy. And we can be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope and joy that we've been given. Because we have the Christ. Because we have the resurrection and the life in Christ. Friends, we have the gospel of hope. And we have every reason to live in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we praise you this morning that we do not live as a people who are to fear death. We don't have to fear death. We are people who don't have to panic because we have the hope of Christ. So Lord, I, I ask that right now, whatever anxiety our church is feeling, Whatever anxiety our our mothers and grandmothers have that their children will be infected with this. Whatever anxiety our, our husbands and fathers and grandfathers have 
that they won't be able to provide for their families. Lord, I, I ask you that you would let us know that your glory is greater than our fear and the hope that we have because we have been made your children should make our fear nothing in the face of this. Lord, keep us from sin. Protect us from worry. And give us wisdom during these days. And help us to be the light of Christ to our neighbors and those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing in response to this good news, shall we?